Hello everybody, welcome to the Heart Podcast. Today we have a discussion with Professor Simon Ray. Simon is a cardiologist from Withenshaw in Manchester in the north of the UK and he is also the current president of the British Cardiovascular Society. We have a discussion all about the ways in which cardiology might change and is already changing in a post-COVID world. Our discussion touches on outpatients, inpatients, the use of virtual clinics, virtual MDTs, online education and the future of face-to-face cardiology conferences. I hope you enjoy the show and please do spread the word about the podcast far and wide so we can reach new listeners. Thank you very much. Perhaps we could start by you introducing yourself, Simon, telling people who you are and, uh, and what you do. So um, I'm Simon Ray. I'm a cardiologist in Manchester at Widdenshaw Hospital, and I've been a consultant there for just over 25 years from the 1st of May. Uh, currently, I've got a couple of national roles. I'm the president of the British Cardiovascular Society, uh, um, two years through um, into my three-year term, and I'm also the, the joint national lead for the Getting It Right First Time programming cardiology, which is uh, dovetails rather neatly with the work of the professional society, but it's also been quite relevant or will be quite relevant in the in the post-COVID um, reinstitution of cardiology services across the country. And I wanted to to get you onto the podcast, Simon, really to talk about uh, with your hat on, uh, as you say, covering several national roles as well as obviously a, a busy hospital in the north of England. How do you think things are going to change as we now move, shall we say, past the peak of of COVID anyway, the first wave into more business as usual? I think we can all agree that everything is is going to look very different. I think it will look very different. And I, I think it, it's already looking very different. And if you look back from the perspective, or rather you go back to January, February, and, and look forward from then with a perspective of three months from earlier this year, it would be very hard to imagine that we would ever get through the scale of change that has been accomplished in the health service across the country in that period of time. The the pace of development has been enormously rapid, much faster than has ever been achieved before. And I think whilst everybody accepts that uh, those changes have been disruptive, there are clearly some positives that will, will come out of that. And you're absolutely right, James, that this will not be going back anything like to a to a new normal. And I think what it does do, as ever, that there are opportunities within a crisis. And what we need to do within cardiology and more broadly across healthcare is, is to look at precisely what are the positives that we can we can draw out of the opportunities that we've given simply by the nature of, of the rate of, of, of change that we've had forced on us over, over the last couple of months. So if you look at what some of those some of those changes might be i think you can there are a number of broad themes which are which are quite obvious and none of these i think are starting from uh, a point of ground zero so i think if you were if you were to look at uh, the the way that practice has changed in the most obvious way and that is the the large scale abandonment of face-to-face outpatient clinics during the peak of the COVID crisis. Now, even now, as we as we start to resume cardiology services, 
there has been a very large scale switch to virtual outpatient clinics and i can't see that ever um, reversing back to the to the point that we had before and i i did a brief um, interview for the for the bcs website a, a, a week ago and I, I i made the point on that that prior to to covid in my in my uh, clinic setup on a on a tuesday morning through the clinic waiting room because we've got several clinics going we'll probably have 100 110 people going through that and that is it's very hard to see that being sustainable in the future or even desirable in the future and i think although there was initial reluctance uh, on the part of a lot of clinicians and probably uh, to some extent on behalf of patients i think remote outpatient clinics are here to stay and one of the one of the most important things that we can do is to look at how we maximize the potential of of the IT infrastructure that is out there such that we we deliver remote clinics in the best possible fashion to our to our patients and i come back to the point that i made at the beginning about none of this coming out from ground zero of course a lot of this was uh, i suppose um presupposed by the the topol report back in 2019 on the use of digital technology in the health service and i think possibly what the covid crisis has done is to accelerate a lot of change that would perhaps have taken otherwise taken a long period of time and put a much clearer focus on this and that that's broadly i think what we need to be exploiting certainly i agree with you and that's what we've seen uh here in the in the east of england in a in a large dgh hospital much more use of uh, initially phone clinics rather than video uh, services, but we are getting set up with those, as I suspect many people across the world are. There will, of course, be some patients where we do need to to do a face-to-face consultation, and I suppose some of our job is to communicate that to GPs and decide amongst ourselves. For example, a rapid access chest pain patient with no ECGs probably ought to be seen face-to-face, but as you say, you, you think sort of 80-90% of face-to-face consultations can can change to a, a different medium, Simon? I, th- I think it depends. <coughs> You're absolutely right, James. It, de- it depends on the nature of the patient. And there clearly are some groups of patients who need to be seen face-to-face. And I think rapid access chest pain is one example. And there are, there are a lot of others. I think um, new onset or exacerbations of heart failure, particularly those patients defined at high risk by um, community BNP level of more than 2,000 complex valve patients and there, there will be others as well particularly adult congenital patients and patients with complex comorbidities who who will need um, to to have face-to-face clinics but I think uh, we you're right we and we do collectively need to identify who those groups are uh, that needs to be conveyed to both to 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 patients and to primary care. But I think if you were to uh, somewhat artificially lump together general cardiology, I think your ballpark figure is, is would be about right. I would have thought that as a default, probably 70% plus of, of consultations could be done virtually. It, clearly, it will depend also to some extent on the demographic in that if if you work in an area where there are large numbers of patients who do not have English as a first language, that makes it more complex. 
as it does um, if you work in uh, an area where there are a high proportion of elderly patients who who may not um, cope as well with with a phone or video um, consultation as as perhaps some younger patients might do. So I think it does need to be tailored. But what I wouldn't want to see is that is is the clear need for some patients to have face to face consultations for that to be used as a as um, a means of, of, of reverting towards where we were before because I, th- I think that would be disadvantageous and I think you know with the best will in the world if I look at the situation that, I, that we have in in our clinics and we have some excellent staff we have a reasonably good clinic environment but sitting there waiting for sometimes quite a long period of time in a, in, in a very crowded area is is not a positive experience necessarily yeah, absolutely yeah no we we have the same here and i think it's probably similar across many clinics in the uk and elsewhere you, you touched a little bit on on primary care there simon and the interaction you think that might change between primary and secondary care in, in cardiology as an example can you talk a little bit more about that and the changes either that you've seen or that you think may be coming along i can and i and i I think this also needs to be emphasized as something that's very important. And certainly in um, uh, my own area, and I know in in quite a lot of uh, other areas around the country, that um, during the peak of the COVID crisis, the the choose and book system uh, was turned off. And we've had a much greater uh, contribution of cardiologists, particularly consultants, but not exclusively so, in the triage of referrals from primary care. And I think by and large, that has been a positive experience. It is, it needs to be, have time devoted to it, but the ability to uh, triage referrals such that significant numbers of, of patients can be allocated uh, either to uh, a virtual clinic as, a, as opposed to a face-to-face clinic or potentially to uh, outpatient investig- investigations or simply advice back to primary care. Um, some hospitals had already been making use of this uh, ability beforehand, but I think, again, this is something that the crisis has forced on us uh, to develop a lot more quickly. And I think you can look at it as having potentially several tiers in that I would like to see in the future that it's much easier for a primary care clinician to get directly in touch with a secondary care cardiologist around uh, to get an immediate answer around a, a, a clinical problem about does somebody need to be referred do they need to come directly into hospital do they do they need for instance to go to a rapid access chest pain clinic or what is the significance of, of, of a result and i think at the moment the 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 model that we've had in the past where a lot of this has been done either by uh, paper correspondence or by email correspondence, there there have been a number of unnecessary steps in that interaction. And I think the the ability to get direct interaction between primary and secondary care on a number of levels, the the ability for for primary care to actually uh, speak, ideally uh, virtually face-to-face with a secondary care consultant, or the ability to put most if not all referrals through an advice and guidance type system to allow systematic triage 
prior to the point of being listed for clinic would be would be a huge advantage. And there are some excellent examples around the country where that's been made to work pretty quickly and does seem to be uh, carrying significant benefits with it. But it, what it will require is quite a significant change in the way that both primary care and secondary care work. As, as ever with, um, with these initiatives, it will be dependent on IT developments. And, I, and that clearly is a risk because as uh, anybody who works in the NHS knows, the, the IT infrastructure is variable from trust to trust, from um, uh, primary care um, in, and within primary care facilities as well. And if we're going to be able to achieve a lot of the promise uh, of, of the developments that are potentially out there, uh, there needs to be considerable investment in IT infrastructure. And, it, and I think one of the things the Topol report made very clear was that there also needs to be a general upskilling of clinicians in the NHS at all levels. And, and certainly if I, if I look back again over the last couple of months, my level of understanding of the capability of remote consultations, for instance, and the use of apps um, has expanded enormously. It's still probably nowhere as good as it ought to be, but, it, but it's a lot greater. I, I've been on a very steep learning curve over the last six to eight weeks. Yeah, absolutely. I think we all have, haven't we? We've all become experts on Zoom and, and Skype and yeah. <laughs> and then the various uh, NHS-approved uh, communication methods that we can use with patients as well. Um, in the list you sent me, Simon, you talk about uh, the development of primary care diagnostic centres, um, lining them with secondary care. Can you talk a little bit about what you mean by that? I, I, I can, and uh, and I think this is this is another extremely important facet of of uh, the overall future development of cardiology and one of the one of the lessons which we've learned very quickly during the uh, very early restoration phase of cardiology services is that patients are pretty reluctant to come up to a hospital at the moment and i think if you extend the concept of the remote outpatient appointments and people not having to travel and park and the rest of it it makes sense to apply the same concept to um, to the ability to access diagnostics and if you look at it from the primary care perspective as well I, I think having greater access to cardiology diagnostics out out with the secondary care setting also makes sense so one of the one of the issues that's come up quite a bit uh, in the conversations I've had around this are that a number of GP practices still don't really have access to reliable ECGs. It's difficult to get um, uh, ambulatory rhythm monitoring or ambulatory blood pressure monitoring performed in some practices. And uh, there is also variable access to community echocardiography. And I think one of the, one of the ways to get around this would be if we were able to establish primary care diagnostic centers and you might you might need depending on the size of, of, of the population for the, for the old ccgs possibly one or two of these which were able to provide outside of a hospital setting uh, certainly ecg phlebotomy whole uh, ambulatory rhythm monitoring blood pressure monitoring echocardiography and of course i'm talking here purely about cardiology but you you would imagine the same sense of being able to provide respiratory diagnostics for example so um, pulmonary function testing 
possibly some uh, X-ray um, X-ray uh, imaging, then it, uh, to me that's a very that's a very attractive um, proposition. Where you, where there are potential problems are that you would need these centres to be linked into secondary care such that there was a single patient record so that any investigation done in that um, in that setting was accessible both to a primary care record but also to a secondary care record and i think the the obvious way to set those centers up would be that in effect they are an extension of secondary care so there are a number of very good models across the country now for instance whereby echocardiography is provided uh, by uh, usually by cardiac physiologists from a secondary care cardiology department who are in effect rotating out into a, into a center providing community echo provision. The, the scans done in that center are immediately available for review on the secondary care echo archive and the staff maintain their, their competence and their experience by rotating in and out of the community and hospital environments. And I think what, what you do with that model is you also maintain the, the governance around the integrity of the reporting of those investigations in a more robust manner than you would perhaps be able to do if they were entirely independent um, uh, setups. No, it sounds a really good idea. And um, as you say, um, to, to hear that there are some places that are already up and running with this is, is really encouraging. Um, maybe we can talk a little bit, Simon, uh, just in the last few minutes about how you think things might change within the hospital. You mentioned, um, you know, rapid improvement, hopefully in in IT systems, and and I think most places will have seen uh, the IT uh, folks being much more front and centre than, than usual. But what about things like reorganisation of of MDTs to to virtual rather than face to face, and happening on a much more frequent basis? Uh, I've I've certainly noticed this in in a very positive way. Yeah, I, I, I can only agree. So one of the other main themes that um, runs through or, or, or I hope will run through the restoration of, of services are the lessons that have been learnt both from the cardiothoracic surgical GERFT, getting it right first time program and also cardiology. So the, the cardiothoracic surgical report was published um, uh, a couple of years ago. We're just writing the, the cardiology uh, report at the moment. And MDT, MDTs and the organization of MDTs are a, are a major theme um, in that. And I think you've, you've mentioned there a couple of the, the essential requirements of, of what MDTs should look like for the future. So first of all, I, the virtual MDT, I think, has to be something to be, to be promoted in that what it allows is for... Uh, clinicians from more than one institution to be involved. And this has been a, a source of intense frustration, I know, from in some referring hospitals around the country, is that it's very difficult to be able to access an MDT at a surgical centre, say, um, because, of, because of the travelling involved. And the answer to that has to be virtual, virtual involvement. I think the point you, you made about greater frequency is also exceptionally important because one of the, one of the frustrations, again, that's been expressed on both the surgical and cardiology GERF visits around the country is that the MDT is on a Thursday and if you have a patient who presents with a problem on a Friday, in effect, they might be waiting the best part of a week before you can get a formal opinion 
uh, on on optimal management. And clearly, that is something which cannot be sustainable for the future, particularly if there are going to be pressures on hospital beds with social distancing, etc. And I think the the idea of having much more nimble MDTs, ideally on a daily basis, but certainly several times a week. Um, and if, if you, there are lots of varieties of MDT, but if, if you look, say, at a revascularization MDT, if you're able to hold that on a daily basis virtually at a particular time with a, a uh, with a couple of cardiac surgeons, with interventional, non-interventional cardiologists and the other appropriate members of the team, that any referring hospital would know that they would be able to get their patient discussed on a daily or perhaps three times weekly basis. I think there are obvious advantages to that in terms of more rapid decision-making and patient flow. And we, coincidentally, not entirely coincidentally, but we we are due to update the, the 2015 guidance on MDTs, which was written by the British Cardiothoracic Society, BSIS, and the Society of Cardiothoracic Surgeons. That we're in the process of just setting up the the 2020 update of that. We're broadening that out to look at areas other than just revascularization. And clearly, how you work virtual MDTs in practice will be a major part of, the, of that piece of work. But you're absolutely right, James. I think this is this is an exceptionally important component uh, of, of the way that cardiology and cardiac surgical um, departments will change their interactions for the future and let's just finish off by um highlighting and mentioning the amazing uh, reorganization of education which has really been led i think by some of the the sbrs and junior trainees in cardiology there's been some really good online webinars that i've i've watched quite a few of myself uh, which have been put together by the uh, british junior cardiologist association and many others uh, this has really been uh, refreshing uh, and a, a really good way of delivering online content i think i'm sure you're aware of the assignment as well i i am and i i can only agree with you and i think it it shows fantastic initiative um largely on the part of our of our trainees and the, and the bjca and i think what they've achieved over a short space of time with those, with, with those webcasts is, is is extraordinary and I've, I've certainly had a number of, of, of comments through direct to me that this is, this is clearly the model for the future. And that the, whilst there is still going to be a place for one-off annual meetings where you can do things which are much more difficult to do online, for instance, simulator training and, um, and uh, activities along those lines, that there is huge scope to increase the the, the uh, amount of online education that, that that is delivered, and that's something that, that the British Cardiovascular Society we're we're looking at very intently at the moment. And I have to say, for somebody like myself, who is uh, a complete novice in this, uh, again, I have been astounded by the the rate of progress in the last couple of months at what uh, what can be delivered rapidly to a very high quality. Um, on what is really quite minimalistic infrastructure, and I uh, and I suppose one of the challenges now is for organisations like the BCS and for, for a lot of other professional societies is how do we translate the traditional courses? I'm not talking specifically about annual meetings here, but the the courses which we have run on various aspects of cardiology. So I know congenital heart disease being, being, being one example. How do we now translate those into an online format? Because I think 
uh, as, you, as you rightly say, James, this this clearly is the future. The fact that people can access education at a time convenient to them on demand is once that's out of the box, it's it's never going to go back in. And, and I think it, it is how how it, it's really how it can be best developed. And again, how do you use the technology to its maximal uh, available utility? But you're absolutely right that it's, it's clearly going to be the future. Yeah, absolutely. And and just the fact that people from all over the world uh, can access these webinars, as yeah. you say, any time of the day or night. Um, uh, absolutely. I mean, it breaks down all the traditional barriers around difficulty traveling, etc. And I, I think the, the the positives vastly outweigh the negatives. Yeah, I mean, it, it is a real shame that our annual meeting in the UK, which would have been, I think, next week, um, yes, has been has been postponed for a year. But um, it is good that the the abstracts have all been marked, and people are the young trainees that I have are all very excited to have things accepted for for publication as abstracts in heart, and and, and certainly look forward to the meeting hopefully happening in person uh, next year. So um, I, I think that's an important point, and whilst. There are a lot of things that can be delivered online. I think <clears throat> annual meetings have a very clear place in the calendar and will continue to do that. And part of it is around the network and, and, and meeting face-to-face with, with other trainees and, and, and with, with colleagues and former colleagues. It, there is, I think it's difficult to get the same um, atmosphere for the presentation of abstracts in a non-face-to-face environment mm. um, again I, I think that so I think that is still important and it is very important that we continue uh, as professional societies to acknowledge the efforts of trainees producing research and we, as you as you say those abstracts will be published and we will be presenting the usual set of prizes to the the top abstracts and the young invest, uh, the winners of the young investigator of the year competitions, because that, that that it is extremely important that the the effort that is put in by people at that stage of their careers is is adequately recognised. That's really important. Well, thank you so much, Simon, for your time and walking us through some of the changes that you think might be coming. Some of which are already here for us um, as we Indeed. as we sit here in uh, in late May, uh, twenty twenty. Is there anything you'd like to say just in, in closing as a, as a, uh, a way of perhaps <laughs> this is, it's been an unusual presidency for you, certainly this year. I imagine you would never have predicted something, <laughs> something like this uh, when you were sitting down to have your Christmas Day lunch last year. No, um, you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, it, it has been a very strange few months. And I suppose the, the one thing that I would reflect on more than anything else is that cardiology, I think, probably stands out within medicine as being a specialty which relies very heavily on team delivery. And there is very little that we do which uh, is achievable without a lot of uh, a lot of other people so we're very heavily reliant on cardiac physiology on expert nursing and on a whole range of people that make up the heart team and i have been extraordinarily impressed by some of the stories that i've heard from around the country from my own experience locally of how um, heart teams have remained extremely cohesive despite enormous working pressures and the fact that some 
members of those teams have been putting themselves at considerable risk by the very nature of the work they do, um, for instance, primary PCI on frontline COVID patients. And the the response from, from heart teams around the country, I think, has been uh, amazing, really nothing short of amazing that that, that that work has been continued throughout the throughout the peak of the COVID crisis and I, I really um, take my hat off to everybody who's been involved with it. I think the job that they've done is, uh, is uh, truly outstanding. Brilliant, well thank you so much again for your time Simon and uh, this podcast uh, will be published soon for everybody to uh, to listen to. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you.